Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss perfunctory practices and pervasive resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Super glad to be with Sam Beerig today, Dean of Spurgeon College at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Sam, how's it going, man? Going good, man. I good. Am, uh, I'm a huge fan of yours, <laughs> Travis, and I think you have a voice uh, for radio and a face for radio as wow. well. Wow. And Such so love. I'm, I am uh, <laughs> I am as excited as a uh, like a fifth grade girl at an NSYNC concert in wow. in like the nineties. I mean, I'm a huge. I'm serious. I listen to every single one, and because we know each other, you already know that, and I always laud you. But um, so I'm really excited to be here and talk about Jonah. And um, oh, one other thing that your crowd should know. Oh, please. Is that um, you and your wife, Lauren, power couple, <laughs> and we have. Um, she's walking by actually. And we have, uh, uh, in our house, in the Beerick household, we have a betta fish that you gave to us. That's right. That my daughter, um, this is what I feel like the crowd should know about. My daughter named it um, Unicorn Rainbow, and I just think that's so appropriate for Travis. It's, it's a travesty. So, yeah. Anyways. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Unicorn is Unicorn Rainbow still in the land of yeah, the living? Yeah, he's he's actually still king. Like no problem. How oh do you yeah, know? I don't know. Yeah. How do you know? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just he's he's pretty vicious. Um, so I just assumed he was a dude. But anyway, so. uh, well, beta fish are like that though, man. Yeah. they'll they'll eat each other, right? Yeah. Okay. I understand. He's tough. I mean, he's still here after Christmas. That's when he that's when he arrived in the beer home. But, <laughs> I love anyway. it. Yeah. So you're obviously family man. Yep. I know that about you, and you are very involved here in the goings-on at Midwestern, um, and obviously getting things ramped up with Spurgeon College is kind of uh, sort of revisioning, rebranding. Obviously, a lot of great work had been done at the college um, at Midwestern for a a while, but um, it's really just taken off in the past couple of years, and that's how we know each other, as you know, but our listeners might not. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I'm excited to talk about some of those things, what it's like to be in your shoes and um, keeping up with the research and family and those things as you lead this school. But what we mostly are going to talk about, as you know and our listeners know because they've seen the title, is Jonah. So what is the typical evangelical layperson's view of Jonah and what are they missing? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think uh, what what they're typically focusing on is kind of apologetics questions uh, that are not what I would be proposing is um, to look at it as a piece of literature that has an author with an agenda. And so that apologetics is going to lead you to the questions that most would anticipate. Um, uh, is is it possible for a man to live in a whale uh, or a fish um, for three days and kind of questions about that um, as well as uh, a, a misconstrual at the end of they want to save Jonah um, by making him not as uh, – vicious and, and, and hating of the Ninevites as he is by the end, which he wants Sodom and Gomorrah to happen again and um, in chapter 4, but people just kind of eclipse that. So, But the major stuff is chapter 1, verse 17, um, and uh, I, it's actually my favorite uh, verse in the whole book, um, not because of the reasons that most people are fascinated by it is can, can someone live in a, in a fish for three days, um, which I think is the wrong question. That's not what he's wanting to lead us to see, but everything in chapter one is pushing the reader towards judgment. Um, so he's run, prophets don't run from God and he's running from God. This is a, a wall, um, prophet. And then, uh, the sea is churning and, um, he's being thrown out into the sea. Everything is leading you to the cliffs to be thrown off of judgment. And you get to verse 17 and in your English text, 
and it says, um, and the Lord appointed a fish too, and you're going, yeah, to destroy him because it's it's high tide, like it's it's time, um, and that's not what happens. He's he's swallowed away uh, into the mercy of God, and and the Lord shows up with mercy instead. And so, if you're looking at that, questioning, um, can God uh, sustain a man and a fish for three days? You're 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 missing that. You're missing the mercy piece, which is uh, keeps going all the way through the book. And so, I I think. Um, those are the things that people get caught up on, um, and I just I don't think that that's an issue. You know, is is it a historical narrative? Absolutely, um, and we as evangelical kind of confessional Christians are not going to have a problem with that. Uh, we believe also that the Lord spoke the world, spun the world into existence, all of the universe just with a couple words. Um, we believe that Jesus, stone cold dead, cold blood, uh, cold body, he gets up kicks the tomb, you know, uh, and then walks out, throws the deuces. Um, I mean, we believe those things. And so can God sustain a man? That's just not the issue that he's struggling with um, in the book of Jonah. So, But those are a couple things I get hung up on. So, Oh, one other thing I should mention, like children's Bibles. I I use a couple different ones with my kids, and and two of them, which I would consider to be given, I won't drop which ones, but um, you can find them, faithful folks that are putting these uh, children's Bibles together, I, I won't read them to my kids because they're just, they completely miss Jonah and, and focus on the wrong things. Um, or they just do with chapter four, they just eclipse it all together and they just kind of try to save him and, and deal with the issues of, well, he seems like a hero. I think I'm supposed to make him a hero. So they just do that with him instead. So that's a typical evangelical, what they're going to do with it. Um, if they've read it pretty faithfully, they can get over those things. It's not very difficult to discern the, the agenda of what the author's doing, at least overarchingly, but so yeah, those are a couple. Yeah, and one of the things I feel like I end up coming back to in a lot of these conversations is that um, historical accuracy and literary excellence mm. are friends, yeah. especially if you're thinking, this is a book inspired by the living God. Yeah. You know, maker of heaven and earth, that's right. Lord of history, Lord of arts, we could mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Um, then that's not going to be problematic. And so, you're saying let's not get so hung up on these, you know, questions historically as even those we're going to say, yep, absolutely. But then let's move on from that and take the text as it is. Yeah. So you have written a little bit about, talk a lot about literary cues in yeah. Jonah, and you're even getting to that a little bit. What is what is chapter one driving you as the reader, the listener, yeah. to expect? And then where does it take you? And included in that is, okay, what's chapter four doing? Because so many people just go, okay, that's a wrap. Why, what, what's four doing? It's just kind of this add-on. And you're saying, okay, let's take the text as it is. Let's see where it takes us. What are the cues it's giving us? So uh, just lay that out for us. What are some of the literary cues in Jonah? Where are they leading us as the reader? Yeah, yeah. So your, your question um, has some things that, line up in front of it before you get to even the cues and you have to come uh, expecting of the text certain things um, and, and believing certain things about it, I, I, I think, accepting that it is a piece of literature. And so the historical questions are ac- absolutely fine. Um, I, I think what I would propose and what I'm trying to say in this, um, in this article is why don't you suspend those questions for a minute and let it be a piece of literature? It, after all, it is nouns pronouns, conjunctions, all these things. And so we want to let it be that. And then when we, if we have issues later on that, so I'm, I'm not, I don't know a lot, 
uh, wasn't born and raised in Assyrian culture. So if I have those issues and I can't settle them on a literary, uh, just tracing out the agenda of this author, then I can do that. I just want to suspend that till a little bit later. So you're right, the historical um, and the literary are absolutely friends and they're joined together in, in many ways. Um, but it, it does come with, you know, expecting that it's going to be literature. So if I'm going to interpret, I'm going to exegete, then that's an enterprise that I'm being summoned to uh, a piece of literature. Um, and so with that comes just lots and lots of reading, lots and lots of translation. And I know your crowd is um, wired that way. They love the languages. And so jump on Lagos, uh, jump on Accordance, whatever um, you have. Bible works, may it rest in peace. <laughs> R.I.P. Bible works. <laughs> um, <coughs> I'm a Lagos man myself. I, uh, I like to say that I'm, I'm just plain old Tony Stark without it, but with it, I'm, I've got the suit, and, and we can do some pretty serious things. It's but a high view of your well, exegesis. It, no, it's a high view of Lagos. <laughs> yeah, shout out to those guys. So, yeah, I mean, I, but translate. You know, work yeah. at it as a piece of literature. Trust BDB. You're, you're not, you know, you may know a couple things beyond BDB in certain semantic domains or whatever, but um, trust it, translate it, work on it, and hammer at it, grapple with it as a piece of literature, and try to discern what he's doing and where he's pushing you. And you mentioned chapter one. Um, it's moving towards judgment, and then surprise, surprise, the Lord shows up as mercy. You know, he swallows Jonah instead of destroys him. Um, that's what we're expecting. Um, you're almost like cheering for it by that point. Yeah, get rid of this guy. And then all of a sudden, whoa, the Lord, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger yeah. and bounding in steadfast love. And so that's, um, that's what I'd say. I mean, you want to you wanna take it on uh, as, a, as a piece of translation, as a piece of literature, lots and lots of reading, um, and then you want to work with it against the backdrop of biblical theology. Um, and so before, even be still suspending, in, in my opinion, in the sequence of exegesis interpretation, you want to understand Assyria, for instance, uh, Nineveh, um, the, southern, uh, the northern kingdom, uh, in light of its biblical theological background. What is, what is happening and what is Jonah's, how does it interact with the other canonical books as well as what am I being informed about Jonah from these other canonical books before I start asking the questions about uh, Nineveh and what, you know, what size is it beyond the text, those sorts of things. So, yeah. No, that's, that's helpful. So what in your, in your view, uh, so we're going to get into some more of these. You talked a lot about chapter one. I'm definitely curious. We'll come back to what do we do with chapter two? What, what kind of him? How should we feel about this this psalm that's happening? But yeah. what are your criteria then um, for identifying literary cues? How, how do you know, or how can you say with some sense of certainty, I think he wants me to get this? Yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good question. Um, I may not have the uh, a satisfying, emotionally satisfying answer for you. I think the answer is you keep reading. Mm -hmm. So um, some of your folks will have heard of guys like G. Campbell Morgan um, or Charles Simeon. I, I, I've taken, speaking of cues, from, from those guys, I heard, I, I read somewhere, it was in a biography of, of uh, G. Campbell Morgan, that he would read a book 40 times um, before he would ever preach a single sermon on yeah. it. Um, and then and Charles Simeon uh, would, he called it brooding over the text out of, out of Genesis uh, and that he would just sit there and he would just, you know, meditate and stew on this forever. And I think that's what I'm saying. It's just like taking it as a piece of literature, reading it over, and, and not, not even necessarily bringing questions first, 
but listening to the text. Um, I took one of my Hebrew profs at, at Southern Seminary. His name was uh, Dr. Garrett, and, and, he, and he said that. I remember it was a Deuteronomy, Hebrew Deuteronomy class, and uh, he said, just listen to the text, listen to the text, listen to the text. And, and that's something that I'm trying to, to do. And before I'm asking questions, uh, I'm, I, I may not know the answer, but let me read it five or seven or 12 more times, and I may start understanding it, reading it in different translations, trying to translate it myself. Uh, before I move on, and then if I if I haven't figured that out, then I go again to the biblical theological um, issues, and and I may find that I've cracked those codes uh, on more stable ground, mm-hmm. inspired ground, uh, than than I have you know working over to some form of background or provenance or or something like that. So it's it's reading it at the literary level, exegeting it at a grammatical level, understanding. Um, the interchange between nouns, verbs, pronouns, those sorts of things. You don't have to get into backgrounds quite yet. You're just working, exegeting with it. And then from there, may, I mean, then, yeah, by all means, like you still have issues, you still don't understand something, uh, then go pillage the history, like figure out what you can find. Um, but it, it's after you know your actual questions when you've wrestled it down, grappled it down. So yeah. that, that's, my, that's my sequence. I think we talk a lot about method. Um, I'm not always sure what people mean. <laughs> it means different things to different people. I like talking about the sequence. Like, mm-hmm. how do we, when do I introduce this so I don't sever myself off from seeing something there, uh, particularly the apologetic stuff or the history stuff? Um, I may not have discerned the agenda of the author of Jonah yet if I go to those things too quickly, particularly verse 17. Like, I'm just like, well, the science behind this, like, that is not what he's concerned with. Um, it's certainly historical, but again, we trust a, a resurrected God who wrote Scripture. We're okay um, yeah. to trust Him on this. Yeah. So that'd be the that'd be the criteria that I'm using to try to discern these cues. Is I'm actually looking for them. Um, I'm not trying to be pious. I know this is what every exegete says they're saying. I'm trying to look for them to come up from the text. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had done I've, I've done some more recent study on Jonah, but I feel like I knew Jonah was about mercy. But this new kind of wave of study, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it popped anew for me because I'm letting that come out of the text and I'm not coming with questions per se. I'm just reading it over and over and over again and going, oh, this is where you're taking me. This is the hill you want me on and this is the valley you want me to take, take me on. This is how you're developing this character against the backdrop of the Assyrians, protagonists, antagonists, irony, satire. And you're going, oh, these are, this is how this is all working together. Um, and I'm discerning that based on what is happening there without even looking at commentaries yet, trying to go, okay, that's it. And then, I, and then they can be good conversation partners for me yeah. to go, oh, I am, yeah, you're seeing the same things I am, or I don't know what you're talking about. Like that, that's not an issue here. Yeah. So the sequence is kind of the, how you discern those cues, or that's how I've done it. Anyways. Yeah, so. sure. No, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, almost kind of a, you know, it when you see it, right. And then you confirm it if you have yes. to, yeah. kind of a thing. I mean, that's, I think that's very helpful. So yeah, what, what are some of those that you think people ought to be aware of? So ranging from people who all they know of Jonah is the flannel graph storyboard yeah. or whatever. Everybody yeah. uses the flannel graph thing. Yeah. as like a dig. Poor, poor flannel graph I know. Guy. I mean, like, whoever invented that was like, this is so helpful. Yeah. This is going to be such a tool for kids yes. to know the Bible. And then we're all just digging yeah. on the flannel graph. The smile of God <laughs> on his work and, and he's feeling fulfilled, fulfilled. And then you're just like, flannel graphs are terrible. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. the simplistic child's version of yeah. Jonah. So that guy who's like, man, tell me what I need to know. And the guy who's been swimming in it, knows a little bit about it, yeah. but 
Uh, maybe he ought to really be considering these few things that he hadn't considered. What are some of those literary cues? Yeah, yeah. So um, the reason we're having this is I, I, I wrote a, an article at, at, at Credo, and I brought out seven there. I think um, even as I've continued to preach the book and study the book and try to translate it, read it, that sort of thing, I've noticed even more. Um, but these are just a couple. Um, so a, a first one that, that I've tried to bring out was um, Jonah leaves Israel, uh, which is meant to evoke uh, feelings of self-willed exile. So we know um, a self-willed exile um, is always a bad idea for, for an Israelite. And so if you're reading the Old Testament, um, when someone leaves the land willingly, something is that, that's a cue. Like uh, if you're looking at the biblical theological background, something's gone awry. Um, I think we should be reading that with the first couple verses of Ruth. Um, you also uh, notice that um, in other places, uh, 1 Samuel 26, there's this um, idea of sacred space, and like you're not supposed to, to leave that sacred space. It, I think the galvanizing place of it is Deuteronomy 28, when it's saying you're not supposed to leave the land. I'm giving you this land, and you're not supposed to leave it. And so something has gone awry when someone's leaving, and that's exactly what Jonah does. He mm-hmm. doesn't, he's not a usual prophet. He doesn't want to um, abide the Lord's uh, uh, command here to go and be a prophet. And so he, he jets, he gets out of there, and, and that's, that's a cue, like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, something's not going right. And, and you're knowing that by being attuned to the biblical story and reading the Bible, you know, multiple times ago. Is something up with that? You know, and you start discerning that's what this author is trying to, to pull out. So that's one. Uh, second one um, is the sea and the sea monster uh, are meant to cause anticipation of divine judgment. So this is one that I feel like um, over time came more clear for me mm-hmm. as, as I read the, the Bible and just um, have tried to understand what the, the whole canon is doing. But you see that in both Old and New Testament that um, the sea, it, they, they look at it quite differently than mm-hmm. we do in, in modern you know, terms, but it, it seems to evoke ideas of chaos and, and judgment. You see this in, in Genesis as well as like, the people of Israel, Exodus 14, they're going through the judgment of the waters, and uh-huh. then Egypt is is judged. It comes up in Job a fair bit, First Peter, um, and even Revelation 21, whenever we're told um, that, uh, that, and the sea is no more, right? Uh-huh. This sense of there's peace now because the blood of the Lamb has solved it, and, and the resurrection um, has taken place, and final judgment is over, and the sea is no more. This idea of, uh, you know, sea... Is, is judgment. And so in chapter one, that's part of this cliffs idea of like you're being driven to the cliffs of judgment. And we see that and we're anticipating um, judgment. The third uh, one is, is Jonah's southward geographical descent um, is meant to reflect his spiritual state. So this is again, this idea of Sheol um, <coughs> being judgment and Everything that that Jonah does, and this is a you know this is why I'm calling it a cue, is he keeps going downward in chapter one and, and chapter two, and there's all this descent language um, as he goes from the northern kingdom and he goes down towards Joppa and he goes down into the boat and he uh, goes into the bowels of the boat and when he goes into the bowels of the boat he eventually gets thrown out of the boat into the sea and so everywhere he's going he's going down and um, chapter two when he prays there's all this descent language he's being um, sent off into the deeps. Uh, you know, if she always says, it's like I've been sent into, into the deeps. Uh, in, in verse 
three of chapter two. He's, he's in the depths. He's engulfed. He sank to the foundations. Um, everywhere he's going, he's going down. And it pictures his spiritual state. You know, you're, you're alive. Why would you be going down to, to Sheol? And so he's, he's rebellious. He's disobedient. And every piece of mercy that the Lord sheds on him, he responds with um, running. You know, he's, uh, when I'm preaching to, to students, um, I'm saying he, he sprinted, you know, he sailed, he swam, he sunk, he got swallowed away as far away from the presence of the Lord as he possibly could, which is insane. You know, prophets don't do this. They love the Lord. They, they delight in these things, even if it brings difficulty, their ministry. Um, but this is a unusual, um, prophet. So, so that's a, that's a, uh, third one. Jonah's disobedience is meant to show a revealed contrast. So um, you see one thing all the way throughout the book is that um, he's going wrong and everyone else is going right, um, it, but yet he's the prophet. So the waves are obeying the Lord uh, in chapter 1. The wind is obeying the Lord in chapter 1. Uh, the lot even falls on Jonah. It obeys the Lord. The sailors obey the Lord <laughs> by throwing him out. They even obey this uh, rebellious prophet. He tells them, look, if you'll just throw me out into the sea. They, they even obey you yeah. know, the Lord through this rebellious prophet. The fish obeys the Lord. Um, the Ninevites repent in chapter 3. They obey the Lord. The worm obeys the Lord. The sun and the east wind, they scorch Jonah. They obey the Lord. Um, but the, Jonah doesn't. He does the exact opposite. He rebels against the Lord and does everything he's he's not supposed to do. Um, so everyone, everything, you know, obeys the Lord except uh, for Jonah. So uh, the fifth one that I brought out here was the usage of uh, gadol or great in, in Hebrew, and it's meant um, to uh, evoke this satirical. It's a satire. I mean, obviously, that's a more recent category, but it does seem to have tons of elements, the whole book of this idea of satire, and it's meant to um, just point to everything's big in, in the book of Jonah. Nineveh's big. The fish is big. The waves are big. Everything's big. <clears throat> you could say it's bigly, um, uh, one of your favorite words. Absolutely. And so everything appears to be big, and he uses um, this word... Uh, 15 times in, in 48 verses, and so we're queued up to, so w what's that doing? And it's supposed to highlight the irony, you know, the satire in, in Jonah, and it shocks, it shames, and ultimately is supposed to convict us. Um, the sixth one is uh, the irony in Jonah is meant to point to the back to the satire, right? So those are kind of mutually working on each other. Um, so irony in Jonah is meant to point to its satirical nature, and so Assyria, with its capital Nineveh, I mean, the fact that it's the protagonist in this story is very odd, right? I mean, these um, it, when you do break into the to the background stuff after you've worked through the literary levels, um, you notice that uh, this is a wicked, I mean, vicious people, probably unlike any we've ever seen before. And so to paint them in the Hebrew scriptures as the as the protagonist is is shocking. Um, it's it's ironic. It, it forces the satire. Um, and to see that Jonah is actually the antagonist and is shown to be the loser um, and, and is rebellious. And this um, rebellious prophet uh, highlights the, the satire and the irony in it. And then the seventh one I tried to bring out was just that the book of Jonah, it's canon dependent. Um, so a lot of what's happening in the book, um, you notice Jonah ends on a cliffhanger. I, I, I liked it again when I'm preaching to students, I'd say that it's the most awkward ending of any book in the Bible. It just fizzles out. You have no resolution unless you find it elsewhere in the Bible. 
Um, and so you can leave it. Um, it is, it's appropriate uh, to leave it as um, you're just left with the absolute mercy of God in chapter 4 that he's even saving the cattle. Um, and so we're, we're, it's good to leave it on that cliff, but you also ultimately you end up saying, so who, who is the, the true and the better and the more than you know, Jonah? And we see that there's tons of um, pattern connections between Jesus and, and Jonah. In other words, I mean, I think what's being said in the New Testament from Jesus is everything Jonah was supposed to be, I am. Um, and so when Jonah goes left, Jesus goes right. I mean, Jonah hates Nineveh, um, but uh, Jesus loves Jerusalem. He, he weeps over them. Jonah wants to see him burn. Jesus uh, it delights. I mean, though it is difficult, he loves to go to the cross to, to save um, his people. Um, and Jonah is figuratively raised, you know, from life, uh, from death to life in the out of the seas, and Jesus actually is the resurrection. And so you see these patterns as well, and so you see that it's canon-dependent also. So those are a couple of the ones that, you know, I brought out, and, and I think they're cues that if you're missing those, um, then you, you, it doesn't matter how much you know about the background. If you're not following this author's agenda, which, by the way, we, we don't know who it is. I mean, we assume that Jonah was the only one in the, in the fish, so he at least presented his prayer for sure. Um, but uh, we don't know who they are. So if you're not following this agenda of whoever wrote it, who's nameless, and it could be a range of like 500 years when it was actually written, um, if you don't notice those cues, you're going to miss the book entirely. And so the provenance issues uh, are kind of, you suspend those to a little bit later. And they can be helpful. I was, I was helped to understand more about Assyria and um, their wickedness and those sorts of things. But the literary cues were kind of the big deal. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. This is, uh, this is fascinating to me. I, um, I, I preached the whole book one time as kind of a one-shot sermon through the whole story, which is... Um, helpful yeah. to have to think yeah. of what's the message of yep. this not yeah. one through three yeah. but what's the message of one through four and then another time in a series i did three and four which is even to go a little bit in further depth i know you've been preaching this a lot you, yeah you know we'll we'll talk a little bit more about some of how you've been swimming in this uh pun intended i guess yeah um retroactively intended um pun affirmed unintended but yeah. uh, appreciated you nailed it Travis. <laughs> it's one of my Several gifts. Yeah. <laughs> um, both of my gifts uh, are related to puns. Um, but what do you do with two? So I remember yeah. studying for this and going, yeah. and everyone I had ever heard talk about Jonah ever was like, man, this is true repentance. I, you and I talked very briefly as you yeah. were writing this and thinking, how am I going to present this to students? Yeah. And where, where did you land? Is this uh, – because one, one of the commentators, I wish I could remember – one of the commentators said, you know, he takes what would be a typical um, lament or even, you know, penitential psalm yeah. and kind of inverts it where he's talking more about himself than he yeah. is about Yahweh. And I, I didn't – that seemed like a lot to hang your hat on interpretively is word order. You know, he's kind of inverting. I did this and Yahweh answered instead of – or actually, sorry, opposite. Um, how much do you hang on that? How do you yeah. take chapter two? What does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I so I do not think it's authentic repentance um, because you don't find any hallmarks of mm -hmm. repentance in chapter two that that would be basic. So you don't see any brokenness. You don't see any actual change. He seems to uh, confess. So confession would be a big part. He confesses his weakness. He confesses falsely. He says at one point. Um, you threw me into the depths of the sea, which 
you're like, wait a second, Jonah. I, I mean, I, you kind of got yourself in this situation. Like the Lord, I, I think this whole thing is about you being thrown into the depths of God's heart. I can see that. But so he's confessing things, but they're not their weakness. It's like, okay, you've brought me to my knees. Uh, more so, you've brought me to the ocean, to the depths here. I can go no further from your presence, and I yield to your strength. But there's no, there's no real repentance there. And then obviously that's confirmed yeah. in chapter 4, uh, the, mon- the moment that the Lord shows mercy not only to the suburb types, the soccer mom types, you know, like Jonah, the religious types. He shows it to Nineveh. Um, Jonah hates it. I mean, he, he shows his real colors that he was just like, I, I really went there. And it seems that, again, this canon-dependent idea in chapter 4, it seems that Jonah wants to see Sodom and Gomorrah happen. Hmm. Um, he goes outside the city in chapter 4 because he wants to see some fireworks, pyrotechnics, and he's like, maybe, maybe the Lord will, will do this, and ultimately showing his heart. I mean, there's no repentance in him. He doesn't want to see these people receive mercy at all. Um, and when they do, he hates it. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's not showing any repentance, in, in my opinion. So that's part of the let's save Jonah a second time thing. Mm-hmm. You just kind of eclipse chapter four, and I think that's a bad that the whole thing is about God's mercy. That everybody, pun intended, is swallowed up in the mercy of God in this story. Um, the good folks or the good moral folks, Jonah types, um, and the wicked, horrible in our culture, druggy, uh, prison you know, sexually immoral types, they're all swallowed by God's mercy and that that's what his heart is really like. He is mm-hmm. slow to, to anger and abounding in mercy. Um, and Jonah's missing that. And that's part of the cliffhanger. And so, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think there's repentance there. Uh, you have more hallmarks of repentance, confession, brokenness, change in chapter four, uh, chapter three mm-hmm. with Nineveh than you do with Jonah for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I, it seems to me too that one of the there's a little bit of like authorial sleight of hand yeah. that we don't we assume that the reason Jonah is running is because he's afraid to get killed yeah and then in chapter four we're surprised to find out the real reason he was running is because he didn't want to see God have right. mercy on them yeah. I knew that you were a God yeah. slow to mercy mounting and yeah. so there's just so, so many like layers yeah I think when I think. When I had when I have preached this, I think what I, the word I emphasize instead of getting into like irony or satire for to preach it, I think I just said surprise. Yeah. And you could almost take it chunk by chunk and go surprise. Prophet ran away. Surprise. God didn't kill him. Right. Surprise. He still didn't repent. Yes. Surprise. They actually repent. Surprise. Yes. He's still not happy. Like right. the whole time you're just waiting for this resolution. Right. And it just kind of doesn't happen. And That's then right. like you said it fizzles out yeah pretty much completely right um so you 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 were preparing this um kind of as part of your duties as the dean of spurgeon college sure right you made it you wrote a booklet yeah um and for mostly for students kind of a bible study Mm -hmm. for them to work through as you would go you know preach at a camp or an event and you kind of take hey take this with you study through this um how do you bring out these kind of ideas satire canonical dependence, yeah. literary cues, history, apologetics yeah. at that level for the typical high school student. Yeah. Yeah. It's much like what you just mentioned. You're, you're using words like surprise. Um, and so the, the article for Credo is, is quite different than what mm-hmm. I'm actually presenting to, to high school students though. I mean, the concepts are no, they're yeah. no different, but so th- th- I remember one of the application points that I'll bring out is, you know, Jonah's disobedience is a downward spiral, and so mm-hmm. is yours. You mm-hmm. know, just in the sense of that's how you can preach this, his downward descent um, is 
this goes poorly, you know, for Jonah. And so hashtag fail. Yes, hashtag. <laughs> that's the series. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so I, that's how I'm trying to, you know, draw that out, and that you know his his judgment um, is looming large over him. But let's draw out this mercy idea. Um, I tried to bring out various points about this is, uh, you know, through the satire and irony. I'm not saying that, but this is obviously the Lord's. Um, goal in giving this book to us, and so you want to join in on what God has to do. You don't want to be like this reluctant uh, prophet who is relentlessly pursued by the Lord, even in his mm. you know rebellion. You want to join in and be blessed in what the Lord's doing. Yeah. And so it's they all. I mean, Jonah will preach, man. I mean, it, there's a lot of easy ways to bring all those cues out. You just don't call them irony or satire. Yeah, right. um, if you have a particularly, I don't know if you. Uh, you know, pastor in Cambridge or something like that. I, yeah. I'm sure you could, but I I have found that they responded really well. Students, I, I also I was trying to by preaching through it, I'm trying to give them, um, you know, an understanding of exposition that you want to read a book all the way through and understand it. Don't just kind of pluck little things out mm -hmm. here and there. But I'm trying to teach them how to do a devotion or quiet time, whatever you want to call that, and that's what the the little booklet's doing as well. But yeah, they all, every piece is coming out in those preaching sessions. They're just kind of talked about a little bit differently and try to put um, a more accessible uh, bent on it. But, yeah, yeah, man. I love this. This is something that, this something I've heard my pastor say multiple times, but, and I, I absolutely feel this way. It's just whatever book I'm studying or, you know, when I was preaching more regularly or whatever, like, I just, that's my favorite book. Because yeah. I just oh, want to get, yes. and I feel like, because I know you've kind of moved on to Ruth. Yeah. You're doing right. the yeah. same kind of thing, yeah. you know, booklet, everything else, which is done now, right? Yeah, it's done. For yeah. Ruth. Um, but it's cool to like, okay, you're shifting gears, you're getting back into Jonah a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I'm just sitting here like, man, maybe I should, maybe we should write on Jonah for <laughs> yes. my dissertation. Yes. Yeah, it's like, yeah. well, okay, no, that is nothing, I, that's not what I'm trying to I do. I had that exact thought today, <laughs> like working through this in preparation. I was like, maybe I just do Jonah like I was like I love it hey, so man, much I love it and I mean it, it is a book um that I mean even in yeah as I was preparing yeah walking through these sermons I don't know I have to it's probably I've preached through the book 12 or 13 times and and still try to read it um through each time like in, in Hebrew trying to get through it again and, and read it again but uh I'm catching new things like each yeah. time and you just realize man the depths of mm. God's word is you just continue to zero in, zero in, zero in, dial in, um, is, is amazing. And, and I, I have felt uh, again, even today, like working through it, um, just so pursued, mm. uh, by the Lord that this is not a, in a, just a purely intellectual or even homiletical pursuit for me. Um, but rather that, uh, I remember writing it um, in, in a place where you and you and I will both know it's subpar at best coffee shop called Head Rush around here. Um, Dude, it, shots it, fired, man! <laughs> um, what if they and, listen to this podcast? Uh, what if they're maybe one of the they will. What if they're one of the five people? But if they are, then they should come to Spurgeon College and just eat it, right. or, or get a cup of coffee at the Spurgeon uh, or at Tomlinson Cafe. That's so, right. I mean, I remember <laughs> sitting there in and and working on this and and like I actually like was just welling up with tears as the Lord is chasing Jonah around mm. um, the Mediterranean and just finding, like, this is how he pursues me. Um, and just being blown away by the mercy of God that in my sin, in my rebellion, this is how he shows up in my life. He He's so commonly in ways I don't even see 
swallows me in his mercy instead of shows up and bites me in half, you know, um, like, like this, you know, chapter one seems to indicate we're headed towards. And so it, I mean, it'll, it'll preach and, and students have been, I, my experience is they've been very helped by it. Um, so yeah, that's awesome, man. So let's shift gears just a little bit. Um, I wanted to really focus on that. It's evident. I mean, just your love for the scripture and, um, exegesis getting into it in the original languages. I mean, all things that are just hitting a whole bunch of checking a whole bunch of boxes for what we're doing, exegetical tools, tool talk. People who've listened to this know that I, I'm maybe not, I don't want to just spend 30 minutes getting into the exegetical weeds completely. I want to yeah. try to say most of the people listening to this don't spend all day long in Hebrew or Greek. Right. Um, they love it. They, they wish they had more time in it, but they're also pastors or students or, you know, in higher ed or something. And so I would love for them to hear a little bit about what it's been like for you to be a college dean, yeah. teaching some classes, pastoring as a, as a lay pastor, yeah. uh, researching for things like this and, and other yeah. projects, and then having, you know, a wife and several small children yeah. and another one on the way, yeah. which yeah. congrats again, by the way. Yeah, yeah, thanks, On, on little Travis Beerick. Yeah, well, we're going to go with Owen. Um, Fine. Yeah, yeah, so Owen's Owen's the dude um, from church history that, that I'm so thankful for. So we're second son, naming him Owen. Well, I mean, um, Owen Strand's only been on the scene for yeah, a yeah. Few years. He's got a big impact too. Um, it's just mortification of sin, right, right book at the right time. So thankful for that. And so that's awesome. It's my commendation. Okay, um, Owen Travis Beer. Yeah, Owen Travis Beer. <laughs> no, we'll talk about it. Owen Travis yeah. is a good. I'm just let me. Okay, here's my plug. Okay, that's a strong um, Puritan, but kind of keeps some of that Southern flair. Yeah, because I know you're from yes Oklahoma, Texas. Oh my goodness, Arkansas. I don't ever. <laughs> I am a Texan through and I'm through. sorry. As soon as I said Oklahoma, I knew it was wrong. You're from I Texas. Mean, you spent some time in Arkansas, Oklahoma, and wow. Travis is just a strong. Yeah. So their name. Okay. Um, how have you balanced these things? Yeah. Uh, I and it's a good question, and I think a really insightful one for you to try to, uh, you know, yeah, help other people think through uh, how they work on these things. So I mean, my answer would first and foremost be, I mean, my wife is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, Mallory is. Uh, she will be miles ahead of me um, uh, in the blessings line. Um, in eternity and judgment and those sorts of things. And, and I actually, I do mean that as I understand it. If the firsts are going to be last and the last first, then, I mean, Mallory is um, the greatest gift um, that I've ever been given. And she uh, cares so mightily about God's people. Um, and a lot of that has to do with she wants to try to free me up as much as possible to do the various um, callings that the Lord's kind of brought into my life. And so I think that would um, be the biggest one for me is she's, uh, as DMX would say, a ride or die chick. And, and so, um, I mean, that's, that is, uh, that's Mallory. And so I, I think, (laughs) (laughs) you okay? Is that the first DMX reference I've had on Surely, surely it is. I think Um, I know like one line of one DMX song. Yeah. I mean, he's a forgotten theologian, you know what I'm saying? So, um, so yeah, I mean, that would be the biggest thing is, is, uh, is just her willingness to, to um, be a ministry partner, everything that we're doing um, is is done together, and, and so she supports those things. I think on a more comical level, I have zero hobbies, um, and and I, I I think I've worked. I'm I'm 34. I've tried to figure out and assume that that was wrong, um, that I that I was probably unhealthy by not having. But my hobby is like this. Like I I actually I mean 
what I want to do is like get to a book. So um, those are the things that really bring life into me. And so not everyone's wired that way, but I don't know what's going on with Stranger Things. I hear that it's a show. Uh, I've never, <laughs> you and I joke about this. I've never watched, I don't know what's going on with The Office. Never watched it. Uh, don't know any Seinfeld references. Um, I kind of like read books and, and uh, tell jokes and stuff like that and preach disciple nows and camps. Like that's what, I, I love doing that. And I, I do push pretty hard and it's a constant um, thing to, to try to bring some balance to. Um, I, I think I learned a while back, this has a lot to do with just the sin of fear of man. Um, I think balance is probably impossible. Ballast is maybe a better way of thinking about it. Um, and then just priorities. Like I, mm. I, I want, I used to pray for time management. I was like, that's foolish. Like, let me pray for priority management that, um, hmm. I want my, my wife and my kids to come first. The Lord is not going to ask me on judgment day. Uh, I don't believe. Um, why didn't you get your PhD done in this amount of time instead of that? Or um, why didn't you do more with, you know, this, that, or the other thing? But he is going to, I think I'm very clearly scripturally going to be brought forward to give an account for my wife, you know, for my children, for my local church, where I pastor at and those people that I'm covenanted with. And so that's, those are the things that I try to focus on and, um, and I do the best I can, you know, with those. And, and I geek out on this stuff. I mean, I, I'm just taking it slow. I'm, I'm, you will probably finish your PhD before me, Travis, and that's fine. I, I can't run your race, you know, and that's the honest truth is a lot of guys need to hear. You just need to run your race. And if you break your formula, like your biblical formula, that's a bad thing. And so slow down as much as you, as you have to. There, you know, um, there is no PhD in theology required on Judgment Day, though – that's a good thing to pursue. You know, what else are you pursuing that's impeding you from those things? And so that's, that's how I go at it. But. Yeah, no, man, I appreciate that. It's been cool to watch. Um, I didn't really know you before you took on this role. I think it's interesting that a lot of guys, I think who are in this, I don't know if we have very many deans or higher ed administrators besides you who listen to this yeah. podcast. Maybe we do. <laughs> I maybe, surely do. Maybe there's yeah. a lot of them. I don't know, but it seems like a lot of guys start as, um, uh, they're really more in the academic world mm. and they kind of, they're sort of good at leading stuff. Yeah. And um, some of them maybe have just been around, you yeah. know, um, and they get kind of handed this administrative thing and they go, oh, like I gotta, I gotta really put aside a lot of things that I love to do this, but I'm going to do it. Um, whereas you were in administration yeah. and I think it's kind of just cool to watch, but you have such a love for the scripture, biblical theology, exegesis and in preaching and getting to, Maybe actually, maybe do more in this role, even though you're obviously, you know, busy. It's, yeah. it's a, a bigger role with more responsibility. Um, so it's just cool that the Lord has moved it that way in your life. But just yeah, watching you wrestle with how do I, how can I, I be faithful in this? How can I? And I don't, I haven't, I've been a couple of times like just stopped at how um, you you refuse to shirk something off. Hmm. Which I would just be like, man, you're the dean of a college, you're busy, dude. And so it's just cool to see that. Um, it's an encouragement to me. I um, appreciate that. Thanks, bro. Yeah, man, yeah. absolutely. Um, I have a couple of questions left yeah. that are more pertaining to Spurgeon College, Bible College. Sure. Um, we've had great conversation, and, and we're, we're running a little long, which is kind sure. of on me um, to, to, to hone it in if I can. But I just want to have this conversation because I think it's helpful. Um, what is the point? of a Bible college. 
This yeah. can be your 45-second answer if you want it to. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I can speak for everybody, uh, all Bible colleges, but what I would want to say if I was federal head of all Bible colleges and what I would want to hear is I, I think that we do not suffer um, from knowing too much about the Bible. We mm-hmm. don't suffer from knowing too much about Christ or his glorious gospel. And so I think Bible colleges exist for people to zero in on, on those things. And so um, with Spurgeon, I mean, we're, we have a couple other options that you can pursue, communications, even an education degree and, and business and those sorts of things. But we're, we're in the business of trying to get people to um, utilize the scriptures wherever they're going to, to become you know, experts in, in uh, I, I like to say, souls in Scripture. Those are the two eternal things that are going to outlast um, this world. And so I want to be a wise investor and invest my life in those. So that's what I think about with Spurgeon College is, is like a, a Bible college, kind of liberally arts. Um, but uh, I think that's what I would hope other mm-hmm. Bible colleges are doing as well, is they, they are a niche thing um, for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this, so these are really, really bound up together. But my last question, what is the mission and vision of Spurgeon College? If there's yeah. a, somebody who's thinking um, there's a student in my church who needs to consider this sure. or my, my kids or maybe they're a high schooler who somehow stumbled on exegetical tools because they just, in that case, they probably already came yeah. and go to Bible College. <laughs> they're um, coming here already. Someone sent yeah. them this link to convince them to come to Spurgeon College. Yeah. Maybe Amen. you sent them Amen. this link to yeah. convince them to come to Spurgeon yeah. College. Why? What's the vision and the mission? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, you mentioned a little earlier, uh, kind of a rebrand and rename of uh, and relaunch of the of the college uh, to Spurgeon College. And so, if you know anything about Midwestern, which is what Spurgeon College is, the undergrad, it's embedded in in Midwestern. Um, it's that we're for the church, and so to signal a little bit of a wider scope, where our tag is is for the kingdom. And so you can get those other degrees. Um, but our focus and our kind of bread and butter is always going to be on the scriptures and preparing theologically people to go out into the um, into the harvest um, and and working whether that's uh, is as a missionary, as a pastor, as a businessman, you know, someone, yeah, just working um, out out in the harvest in the world, doing something as a as a mom, as a dad, whatever those various vocations come along. And so the focus is still souls in scripture. Um, it's just to uh, to be for the kingdom, you know, ultimately. And so that's how we flesh that out. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. I, again, I'm, I'm just excited about what the Lord's doing. Um, I, I, I won't make you plug, but I want to plug. I, I spent some time working kind of for you, kind of yep. not. It's a yeah. cool relationship. It was awesome, yeah. I I'm loved glad having you at the table. that yeah. we, uh, w- yeah, we're able to have that and then just different department now. But I know a lot about kind of what the programs are and what we do and, um, I, so I, I told students this a lot when this was more in my job, but um, accelerate. Yeah. Five Big years, time. BA and MDiv. Yeah. I so wish that existed. Oh, man. When I was, I'm sure you do too. <laughs> I was 12 years at what they do, five. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, a Master of Divinity yeah. is meant for people who went and did engineering or yeah. whatever to yep. come get in. There's nothing we can get rid of. I right. mean, we can't we can't give you less than. Right. Right now, we're at 81 hours if you don't get an emphasis, right? Right. We yeah. can't give you less than that. But we're assuming you've not studied this in an academic environment right. ever. Yeah, you go to four years of Bible college, and it's a very different ballgame. So That's we have right. some things for that advanced standing that can kind of level you up. But it accelerates the way to do it. Right. I'm a huge fan of that. Um, I'm even just from a stewardship element, right? Financially, oh, time wise, time scholarship, dude, money scholarship, like huge, massive. Yeah. Um, 
Fusion, mm-hmm. which is I knew nothing about really, even when and I was started working here. Best kept secret in the SBC. Uh, we don't want it to be a secret anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, either IMB or NAM students mm-hmm. come for a year yeah. uh, to Spurgeon College. They get a lot of in depth training preparation. They're in a cohort. Yeah. We have. Um, there are more fusion. There are now as many fusion employees at Spurgeon College yeah. as there are just pure Spurgeon College yeah. employees. Now <laughs> it's right. finally even. It wasn't yes. even even before, right. but now yeah. with Dr. Andrew King here, it's even. Yeah. Um, and then we ship them off for the summer. Yeah. And they go with IMB personnel, NAM personnel mm-hmm. in this cohort with leaders who've been through it before. We yeah. support them. We prep them, we receive them and debrief them. And, and, and hopefully then they can bring that to the rest of their years of study. Yeah. And many of them go out and be long-term workers. So I'm a huge fan. I, bigly. I, I yeah. want everybody to have a bigly fan. <laughs> nope. You, you didn't never ask me to say that. I want everybody to know that, but I am into it. Um, I love it, man. I'm a, I, I want Spurgeon college to continue to get, um, some of the recognition that it deserves. And I'm excited to see how the Lord continues to use it and your ministry. Um, and the book of Jonah as we approach it with a little bit of a fresh perspective. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Yeah, thanks, man.